Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, March 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Just when the legal squabbles over CRISPR seem to have resolved, the latest evolution in genome editing is shaping up to be just as contentious. STAT's Allison DeAngelis joins us to explain. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including Eli Lilly slashing the cost of insulin, succession at the FDA, and how pandemic boom times have turned to bust. But first, a word from our sponsor. Attention healthcare innovators and biotech enthusiasts. Are you ready to explore the intersection of medicine, biology, and technology? Then mark your calendars for the STAT Breakthrough Summit this spring in San Francisco. This event brings together leaders across the industry to discuss how to unlock the full potential of this exciting new era in medicine. Speakers include Stephen Gillett, the CEO of Verily, and Jennifer Doudna, the co-inventor of CRISPR. These experts will share their insights on how technology and innovation are transforming healthcare for the benefit of patients. Plus, the summit will be led by stat reporters, giving you access to latest developments in the field and in-depth analysis of the industry. So join us this May 3rd and 4th at the Stat Breakthrough Summit and be a part of the conversations delving into the incredible advancements happening in the field that are shaping the future of healthcare. Learn more and register today for a limited discounted ticket at statnews.com slash summit. So, Meg, as we mentioned, uh, Eli Lilly announced this week that they are slashing the cost of their insulin, which, again, it and maybe this is just the state of our healthcare system. I couldn't really tell, is this a good thing, a bad thing? Are patients actually going to benefit from this? Um, I'm hoping that you have figured it all out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I figured out some of it, I think, but I agree. I mean, I think some of it's still really complicated and some of it still needs to get worked out. But the thing that really caught my eye about this announcement was that Lilly is actually cutting the list prices of its insulins. So Humalog and Humulin, uh, which still together contribute $3 billion in revenue to Lilly per year, although that is shrinking by about 15% per year, um, it's cutting those list prices by 70%. So for Humalog, for example, it's it's something uh, more than $250 a vial now, and it's going to around you know $65 per vial. Um, Humulin, sort of similar. They also have a non-branded insulin that they launched a while ago uh, that's going to go to $25 per vial uh, from more than $80. Uh, and then in addition to that, as they kind of work out how that's going to go through the formularies with all the pharmacy benefits managers and whatnot, they are saying they're extending this program um, where they cap out-of-pocket costs at retail pharmacies to $35. So the change there, I understand, is that before patients had to go get a savings card on Lily's website in order to access that cost um, if they you know, were paying more than that. But now that will just be automatically um, put in place at retail pharmacies. So uh, Lily is saying that should help people. And, you know, the the reaction yesterday was really interesting. Um, I was reaching out to people with diabetes uh, to ask them what they thought. And, and a lot of people were like, wow, this is amazing. I can't believe this is actually happening. But other people were like, wait, if they could do this now, 
Why? What took them so long, right? Like, this has been so hard for so many people. Um, And so I asked Dave Ricks that on a media briefing yesterday, and he basically said the market has failed for insulin, where they expected generic competition to come in or biosimilar competition. And he said for reasons that he doesn't understand, it really hasn't come in, which I thought was an interesting comment, because if anybody would sort of understand that, you'd think it would be Dave Ricks. Um, But so he said since 2016, they've tried all these different things by introducing their own biosimilars and trying to provide patient assistance. And finally, this is just the last straw. So, of course, you saw President Biden coming out and applauding Eli Lilly and then challenging Novo and Sanofi, the other big two makers of insulins, to do the same thing. Bernie Sanders piled on. Uh, I thought he said he was praising Eli Lilly, but he was praising public pressure for forcing Eli Lilly to to lower the price of insulins. Um, but I reached out to Novo and Sanofi, and they wrote back with all the things that they've already done, but didn't indicate they also plan to lower list prices. So it's just going to be interesting to watch how this works with the PBMs right? Because the whole argument was they had to keep the list prices high because they had to pay huge rebates to PBMs in order to get good formulary placement. Um, And if the list price is actually coming down, what does that end up doing? I also reached out to the PBMs and got absolutely no response. I mean, they wrote back and were like, when's your deadline? And I was like, five hours ago. So um, (laughs) yeah, we'll see. We'll see what ends up happening. But, um, you know, public pressure really did uh, win here. Well, going uncredited in all of the reaction is the brave soul who impersonated Eli Lilly on Twitter back in November and said, we're excited to announce that insulin is free now, which I think history will uh, honor as the first mover of this whole thing. But seriously, I am curious, Meg, you mentioned the, the whole like chess match that exists that never ends between drug makers and pharmacy benefits managers and the um, escalating list price issue that, as drug companies would point out, and and as you mentioned, was so that those managers could capture more rebates and thus driving list prices higher. And for people without insurance, forcing them to pay these these high dollar amounts. What does this put the ball in the court of the PBMs? Like what what do you expect to see next now that Lilly has made this chess move? Because it does kind of if PBMs are to balk at this because their rebates won't be there, that would look really bad in the public for them to say, like, actually, this drug being or this medicine being more affordable is wrong. Like, is there some kind of like meta game going on between Lilly and, and these companies that, that Lilly and others have decried for so many years? Yeah, I mean, I think that is sort of the they're playing this game to try to say like, okay, PBMs, what are you going to do now? Because if they if the PBMs still have the option to keep higher list price insulins at better formulary placement, you know, with Novo or whatever, are they going to do that? And then how did they explain that? And they always have explanations. Maybe it's, you know, we use this to lower premiums for everybody else or, or something like that. You know, like we spread the costs around. Um, so we'll have to see. But I think, you know, we've started to see drug makers play these games with PBMs, you know, with like Amgen introducing multiple versions of biosimilars or multiple versions of its cholesterol drug way back in the day um, to try to show that, you know, the PBMs prefer a higher priced uh, drug. So, you know, this doesn't necessarily change things in a major way, but we will definitely keep on it to see what the PBMs end up doing. But importantly, this isn't going into place until the fourth quarter of 2023, because Lily says they need time to kind of work this out with the whole system. Um, But interestingly, Lily said this will impact their revenue this year, um, but their insulin was already declining. Um, 
So I don't know. They do expect to be losing money as a result of this. Um, at the same time, how much more money than they already were losing? I don't know. I mean, not this losing, doesn't impact declining revenue. Yeah. This doesn't impact Lily's pricing on their more premium insulins, correct? I mean, right. It's just the older ones. So going from a 100-year-old medicine to medicines that are not yet approved, how do you guys like that segue? <laughs> uh, there was huge news this week in the world of the FDA and its uh, neuroscience drug regulation. Billy Dunn, who you guys have written about extensively in all of your Biogen and Alzheimer's coverage, um, is leaving. And this is a story that you guys and Endpoints, I think, broke um, around the same time. Um, tell us about what you learned and what the ramifications might be. Yeah, it was one of those uh, Monday morning things where I got uh, I got a I actually got a DM uh, over Twitter from a source, uh, someone inside the FDA said, oh, uh, Billy Dunn is leaving. <laughs> like I was like, wait, what? And then I think I, Damien, I think I immediately slacked you. Right. I was like, uh, I just heard that Billy Dunn is leaving. <laughs> uh, so that was that obviously made us uh, sort of. Uh, stand to attention and get and get cracking on on writing the story. And so, like you said, Meg, yeah, uh, you know, Billy Dunn, I don't know how much more we really need to sort of describe him to our listeners because we've talked so much about him. Dunn is the head of the Office of Neuroscience inside the FDA uh, and so is the man in charge of uh, reviewing Alzheimer's drugs and drug drugs for ALS and Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, many other types of neurological diseases, and and obviously a man of some controversy as we have talked ad nauseum. So the announcement that came out uh, Monday was was essentially a simply uh, a statement saying that uh, Billy Dunn was retiring from the FDA to pursue other opportunities outside of the agency what those opportunities are or where he might be going uh, has not been disclosed. Uh, I think Billy Dunn is... Biogen's looking for a head of early stage research, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. The joke was, oh, he's going to Biogen. Um, uh, Billy Dunn is what, 53, Damien? Is that right? Mm -hmm. So he's probably not retiring, retiring, but maybe he is going somewhere else, but we don't know where that is. But, you know, this all, you know, kind of gets thrown into the mix of the the controversies and what all this means. I, I don't know, Damien, if you think there's a sort of bigger picture here, uh, what the implications are of, of his departure. Well, yeah, I mean, in fairness, this happens all the time. FDA official leaves FDA to eventually end up in industry, which I'm just assuming uh, Billy Dunn will do. His predecessors uh, did well, his immediate predecessor in that department of neurology now works for Ionis, um, and that's just—I mean—you can feel how you want about the quote-unquote revolving door of the FDA and industry, but it's not necessarily extraordinary. What makes the Billy Dunn situation extraordinary is not only all of the preamble of Adjuhelm that that we've discussed and that people know, but that he was the not solely the subject, but a named and chastised person in the big congressional investigation that was just made public in December, which is not that long ago. And so it's reasonable to wonder what exactly went on, not only between then and now, but in, in the months and even last two years or so within the FDA that might have led Billy Dunn to make this decision. And then the other question is, why now? Whether it has anything to do with that congressional investigation is possible. Likewise, I think there's no question that the Adjuhelm approval was perceived as a demerit or a black mark on Dunn's career and on the FDA at large. Did he wait until after the approval of lecanemab, the other Alzheimer's drug that people aren't mad about, um, to sort of ride into the sunset on that? 
Obviously, we don't know. Um, we've reached out to some people. It's basically all speculation at this point. But the the timing is interesting, and where he does end up after this will likewise be interesting. And he's already been replaced, uh, I guess, on an acting basis right now. Um, Teresa Baraccio, who was the deputy director of the Office of Neuroscience, is now the acting director. So it was basically taking Billy Dunn's place. And so the questions there obviously became just, you know, well, what is she like? Uh, is she going to run that office the way Billy Dunn ran the office? Does she have a different philosophy? Um, we did a we tried to do a quick story. We did do a quick story. Uh, about her, uh, reached out to a, a bunch of people. There's not a lot known about her, um, although it does seem, based on our reporting, that you know she seems to align herself with the kind of the philosophy that uh, that Dunn used to run that office, and that meaning you know sort of having a fair amount of sort of regulatory flexibility when it comes to reviewing and approving drugs, particularly ones for dire diseases. Um, it was interesting that. Uh, Billy Dunn made his announcement like one day before a pretty controversial drug decision was made on a drug uh, that was run, um, developed by Riata Pharmaceuticals for a dr uh, disease called uh, Friedrich's ataxia. It's a rare neurological disease. A um, lot of contentious uh, back and forth about the quality and strength of those data. Uh, the FDA ended up approving it. Um, so that might have been Billy Dunn's final act, or it may have also kind of shows you that that uh, Teresa Braccio is going to run the Office of Neuroscience uh, very much in the sort of way that uh, that Dunn did. It's also something that, you know, the industry is watching very closely as well. We did see some stock movements. Um, you mentioned Riata, uh, Adam, that stock went down 30%, you know, the day before its Padufa date, because people were worried that Billy Dunn's departure had something to do with the the approval decision there. We also saw other neuroscience-focused uh, company stocks move, like Sarepta, uh, which also then had some positive news that they're not having an ad come for their Duchenne muscular dystrophy drug uh, the next day during their earnings. Um, but I asked Dave Ricks about this when we had him on CNBC on Wednesday afternoon about the insulin news, and he said, you know, Billy was a champion for change and getting new treatments to patients. He did note the controversy around him, but he said he was somebody who thought we ought to be thinking of diseases like Alzheimer's like we do cancer, um, which I thought was interesting. So, um, you know, they're, I think the industry is watching very closely to see if Baraccia is the you know permanent replacement and then what her philosophy is, too. So speaking of the Food and Drug Administration, uh, they spent two consecutive <laughs> days talking about two new vaccines, not for COVID-19, but for another worrisome respiratory infection. Meg, what happened? Yeah, this was um, Pfizer and GSK's vaccines for RSV. And the votes ended up, well, at least for Pfizer's, ended up being a lot more, a lot closer than we expected. They ended up voting seven to four with one abstention in favor of both the safety and effectiveness uh, of the Pfizer data. The vote was a little more favorable for GSK. It was 10 to two on safety and unanimous on effectiveness. Um, they pointed out we're not in a situation like we were with COVID. This is not an EUA. This is a BLA, so a full approval. Uh, and they really wanted to see more data. There were some concerns in terms of the safety around Guillain-Barre syndrome, as well as co-administration with flu and COVID vaccines, which they said is probably an inevitability, um, even though it wasn't necessarily tested like that uh, in these trials. We are expecting to see more data from a second season of RSV for both of these companies. So that will probably contribute to 
you know, just the feeling of comfort around this. The Padufa dates are in May for both of these. Interestingly, you saw Moderna's stock kind of falling through these two days of Verpax, um, as I think people were just wondering what the opportunity is going to end up being in RSV, on top of, you know, just thinking that the COVID uh, opportunity for Moderna is shrinking, as it is for everyone. And I think that brings us to our womp womp of the week, which sadly, again, <laughs> is Novavax. Damien, do you want to explain what happened there? I do. I do. I also like the notion of that being a standing uh that was such a segment. that was such a great transition yeah and I now we have that. clean audio of it so we could actually just play it like morning drive time radio um but yeah no, no, novavax a uh, a company that did the very difficult thing of inventing and developing a very powerful vaccine for covid19 which uh was an emerging virus at the time, as people surely remember, and then struggled to do the also difficult but a little more quotidian work of selling it and and manufacturing it and making money. Uh, The company issued earlier this week a going concern notification, which is basically an official decree in an SEC document that like, hey, we can't really be positive that we will be in business in the future, in the near future. Um, And then uh, posted earnings numbers that, that fell below Wall Street's estimates. And the the interesting thing, I mean, the, Novavax's stock price, which has reached as high as I think $200 at the height of, of the pandemic, traded below $7, which was its lowest price since February 2020, which is not necessarily before COVID-19, but definitely before you know the, the COVID-19 run-up. So it's almost as though the pandemic didn't happen, at least in a stock price terms, for this company that, like I said, didn't fail to invent a vaccine, but rather... I mean, fumbled the bag, I guess, in the process of doing so. And we should note that Novavax has a new CEO, right? I mean, a new guy took over uh, the top job there in January. Now, you had to kind of assume that he knew going in, like did his homework and knew that this was happening. I guess it'll be interesting to see like, if they can recover from this. I mean, what, what does Novavax do from here? Well, it's interesting. I looked into his background as, you know, they made this warning about their ability to continue funding the company. And he's not a guy who, like, has taken companies, like, through bankruptcy and out of bankruptcy and whatnot. He, he seems like a company builder. And he was certainly talking like a company builder at the same time as they were talking about trying to manage through this incredibly difficult period uh, where, you know, one of the major issues is this fight they're having with Gavi um, over, which is the sort of Global Vaccines Alliance, which was trying to organize vaccines for COVAX. Um, over, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, for promised vaccine doses. And if they have to return money, that's really going to put Novavax in a bad situation. Of course, you know, you don't want this sort of global vaccine alliance paying money for doses it didn't get either. So it's just this terrible situation. But as he was talking about all of this, he was also talking about building Novavax to be a vaccine leader uh, in the world. So he's definitely not counting the company out. Uh, His name is John Jacobs, and we should have him on the podcast at some point. I'm going to write that down so I remember. You likely remember the lengthy, bitter, and expensive patent litigation that was waged over the discovery of the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing technology. Well, the next evolution of CRISPR could be headed toward a messy legal squabble of its own. 
As stats, Jason Mast, Allison DeAngelis, and Megan Malteni reported this week, a precise new form of CRISPR called prime editing is already the subject of dueling claims from rival companies. But whereas the original patent fight over CRISPR 1.0 was waged by two academic rivals, the new battle is shaping up to be a free-for-all among a multitude of companies and labs, including some of the biggest names in biotech. Allison joins us now to discuss this issue. Allison, welcome back to the podcast. Reunited, and it feels so good. (laughs) (laughs) So um, our listeners are probably pretty familiar with the workings of CRISPR-Cas9, which acts like a pair of genetic scissors to cut sections of DNA and fix disease-causing genes. So now one of the next iterations of CRISPR is called prime editing. So tell us, how is prime editing different, and what can it do potentially? Yeah, of course. So CRISPR, as you just referenced, is, you know, kind of Colloquial known as this like pair of genetic scissors that cuts both strands of DNA, which makes it useful for breaking problematic genes. Prime editing um, is designed to just nick one uh, one strand um, and insert letters, you know, those GATCs, um, reference the, the amazing Ethan Hawke movie Gattaca um, of DNA and that potentially could make it safer and much more useful um, for the thousands of genetic diseases out there. And when this was published back in 2019, it really grabbed the scientific community's attention. It's one of the investors that we talked to referenced the paper and called it a mic drop moment in the scientific community. So, Allison, who invented prime editing and what has resulted from the discovery so far? Yeah, so the Broad Institute, which was one of the original players in the CRISPR-Cas9 patent litigation, um, is where prime editing came out of. David Liu and Andrew Anzalone um, invented what we know of as prime editing there. And that technology has been licensed to a company called Prime Medicine, which has... 18 drugs, they're, you know, all in development, all preclinical, but they're for things like sickle cell disease, multiple forms of muscular dystrophy. um, And the technology also got a patent last fall. So getting to your story, the next CRISPR patent skirmish that you wrote about this week is emerging because there is a close, maybe too close, rival to David Liu's prime editing invention. That competing technology is known as gene writing. Who's behind it and how is it different? So, yeah, just down the road from where David Liu and Andrew Anzalone were developing prime editing, um, a startup that was being formed at Flagship Pioneering, the, you know, $14 billion venture creation firm that's behind companies like Moderna, um, they were working on their own technology, which they called rewriting. Um, it's it's very similar. They have a lot of the same, it has a lot of the same components to prime editing, um, but they they say they got to their technology first. They actually filed a patent application um, that they point to when questioned about this. Um, they filed that patent application back in 2018, which was before uh, David Liu and Andrew Anzalone published their work on prime editing. Now, it's a little unclear at this point just how different the two technologies are. Uh, Tessera hasn't published in academic journals. They say that there are aspects of their technology that differ slightly, you know, from the prime editing work that's been out there. But that's kind of the open question of like, how much does it differ? 
So I have a couple reactions to this. First is the fact that it was a company that perhaps scooped the Broad in the patent situation, which is just sort of funny because wasn't it the Broad that scooped UCSF in the original CRISPR patent situation? So it's just sort of like it's coming back to them. Um, The second thing is you called Flagship a venture creation company. And I know this is like a whole thing. They don't like to be called a venture capital company, right? Like what is a venture creation company? And how is it different from a venture capital firm? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so they don't like to refer to themselves as a venture capital company. They only invest in companies that they start, um, which is a little bit different. You know, a lot of venture creation firms, even those firms that do have internal incubators, um, do take outside pitches. Um, Flagship is 100% what they create. And that's where, in my mind, the, the difference lies. But I mean... Generally, yes, they they do get money from outside investors as a venture capital company does um, and use that to start new companies in the biotech sphere. And I should note, I accidentally said UCSF when I was referring to the original CRISPR patent battle. And of course, it was UC Berkeley. My bad. So, Allison, we've got this uh, emerging skirmish. We've got Prime Medicine, David Liu on one side. They're the prime editing people. We've got Tessera flagship, they're doing this, you know, gene writing or gene rewriting on the other side. Is it a war of words and kind of, you know, accusations right now? Are there legal steps or legal maneuvers between these two companies? Like what what's going on? Obviously, there's a lot of you know money involved here. There's some big egos involved here. But, you know, what are the odds that this escalates to to lawsuits? So the odds are pretty likely that it will escalate to some sort of legal skirmish as, you know, attorneys and people in the, you know, scientific community um, and investment community have have told us right now we're at the point where this is a big debate in the scientific community. And that's one of the things that we wanted to kind of bring to light with this piece. Um, we, we start the piece by talking about how at a scientific meeting in summer 2020, um, a woman who actually worked under David Liu at one point um, kind of stood up during a, a presentation from Tessera's uh, chief scientific officer and said, well, wait, isn't what you're doing, like, how does this differ from prime editing and, and what prime medicine is doing? And Tessera's uh, chief scientific officer referred to it as the elephant in the room. It's it's garnering a lot of debate in the scientific community. Um and as you point out, Adam, yes, there are there's a lot at stake here. Both Prime Medicine and uh, Tessera are worth over a billion dollars. And David Liu has an unprecedented 22 percent stake in Prime Medicine that today is worth around three hundred and fifty million dollars. And it's very rare to see a scientist with that level of equity in a public company. So there's a lot at stake here for the various players. Not only Tessera and Prime Medicine, but there's also a new influx of other companies that are getting into their own versions of, you know, some are calling them RT editors. Some of them are referencing Prime Editing directly. AstraZeneca has started publishing its own data. Intellia Therapeutics, which is one of the companies that was involved in the original CRISPR-Cas9 patent litigation, um, bought a company called Rewrite Therapeutics that has its own um, technology that's adjacent to prime editing. So there is going to be even more at stake as the years go on. 
Allison, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you're Team Lou or Team Newbar. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. 